The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 468th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, there's probably people looking at the title and going, wait, the Battle of Rum Raisin? I mean, I am a little lactose intolerant, so there could be a bit of a war going on in my gut, but what? Rum Raisin? All right, so it says River Raisin, but I mean, there's probably some people who see (laughs) Raisin and go, huh. I go, ew. Yeah. Let me just say, I am not a fan of raisins. I don't want them in anything. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Oatmeal cookies, I'm okay. But nope, nope, (laughs) nope. If you're going to put something in those oatmeal cookies, make it chocolate chips. Instead of rotten grapes. (laughs) I mean, I don't like anything that's all dried up. And now I've got the commercial with the I've heard it from the grapevine raisins dancing around. I have a client who has several of those still in their office, you know, when they made the little plastic ones. Oh, good grief. (laughs) I had some of those, too, when I was younger. Anyway, what we're actually talking about is the River Raisin Battlefield, which was the site of the Battle of Frenchtown. This was during the War of 1812, and probably most of you were going, what battle? Huh? What? Because nobody ever really talks about the War of 1812. This battle is very, very significant, especially for Native American people, because this is going to be the start of their being removed. We're looking forward to telling you about the history and haunts here, and we want to thank our listener, Trey Doyle, for suggesting it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Marie Carey, with a K and an E and an RRY, and Richie. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Scott Booker. Many of us celebrate different New Year's Eve traditions. Some are familial-based, being passed down from generation to generation. Others are cultural or religious in nature. A New Year's Eve tradition that was established relatively recently comes from Talca, Chile. Many people in this city spend New Year's Eve at their local graveyards, surrounded by their deceased relatives and friends. Although to some people it may seem distressing or solemn, the locals here say that spending the night with their deceased loved ones brings peace to their souls and ensures them a lucky new year. Visitors typically bring food and drink for this tradition that began as recently as 1995. 
On that New Year's Eve, a family breached the graveyard's fence to spend time with their recently deceased father. The local authorities were so moved by the Surviving Families Act that new laws were created so that cemeteries were kept open on New Year's Eve from that time on. Today, people are encouraged to decorate their loved ones' graves and spend the night reminiscing about them. Many cultures fear death, but the community of Talca, Chile, have made New Year's Eve a beautiful time of remembrance. Even so, some may say that spending New Year's Eve in a cemetery certainly is odd. the lights. The party's just getting started. And now, this month in history. In January, on the 1st in 1892, Ellis Island officially opened as an immigration station in New York Harbor. 17-year-old Annie Moore from County Cork, Ireland, was the first immigrant to be processed at the new Federal Immigration Depot. She was also accompanied by her two younger brothers. The teenager made history as the very first immigrant to be processed at Ellis Island. The island is located at the mouth of the Hudson River between New York and New Jersey. It served as an immigration station for more than 60 years until its closure in 1954. Ellis Island had millions of newly arrived immigrants pass through its doors during this time. It is estimated that nearly 40% of all American citizens can trace at least one of their relatives having passed through Ellis Island. Many immigrants left their homes in the old world due to war, drought, famine, and religious persecution, and all had hopes for greater opportunity in the new world. During the peak of Ellis Island's operation, an average of 1,900 people came through the immigration station each day. Today, it is part of the Statue of Liberty National Monument, and visitors can tour the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration. This museum is home to a variety of exhibits and houses an amazing collection of artifacts from American history. The Battle of Frenchtown took place during the War of 1812, and its battlefield is the only nationally recognized American battlefield dating to the War of 1812. The greatest victory of the war for Tecumseh's Confederation took place here. What happened after the Battle of Frenchtown amounted to a massacre. In the aftermath, Native Americans were removed from the Northwest Territory. This would be the beginning of decades of Indian removal. The battlefield is thought to be one of the most haunted locations in Michigan, more than likely because of all this negative spiritual residue. Join us as we explore the battles and hauntings connected to River Raisin National Battlefield Park.
Kelly, remember the raisin. Doesn't sound like much of a battle cry, does it? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> yeah. Remember the Alamo has more of the call to arms ring to it, which we discussed and we talked about the haunted Alamo. But there really was once such a cry that fired up the Americans to go on to win the War of 1812. The River Raisin Battleground is located at 1403 East Elm Avenue in Monroe, Michigan. That address is actually for a house that was included on the National Register of Historic Places in 2019. This is actually a fairly young nationally recognized historic site, only becoming a part of the national park system in 2010, but the area has a long history. The spot where the battlefield lies today has played host to many cultures. This was an area rich in resources near the River Raisin and was good for growing crops and fur trading. The Potawatomi and Wyandotte tribes had lived here before French settlers came. The French Canadians called the area La Reverie ou Raison. How is my French there, Kelly? Um, since I don't speak it, I'd say spot on. Okay. <laughs> and that was because of the wild grape clusters that were hanging from the trees over the river. The French lost the territory to the British after the French and Indian Wars. In 1796, the United States took the territory. There was a time not long ago when Detroit, Michigan had been hit hard economically and was a struggling city. Today, it's on a comeback, but it still might be hard for people to believe that this was a city so coveted that people were willing to die for it. This is the historic setting for the War of 1812 in the Midwest. Ohio had officially become a state in 1803. Many future states were part of the Northwest Territory, including Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, parts of northeastern Minnesota, and Michigan. This territory was still occupied and influenced by the British, and they had a strong ally in Chief Tecumseh, who was a powerful and charismatic leader. They worked together to grow a fur business, and the Native Americans trusted the British and believed them when they said they wouldn't settle the frontier. If Americans wanted to venture into this territory, they knew they'd better be prepared to tussle with the British and their Indian allies. There was a dangerous tension brewing. The American government felt that they looked weak not being able to control their territory. The British, of course, wanted to hold on to what they felt should be theirs. The Native Americans just didn't want to be pushed off their ancestral lands. It was inevitable that there would be a clash. In order to control the Great Lakes region, a country had to possess Detroit. Detroit controlled the river corridor into Lake Erie that led into the upper Great Lakes. America couldn't expand without holding Detroit. On June 18, 1812, the United States Congress declared war with Great Britain. This tension in the Great Lakes region was one of the three reasons America gave for making this decision. The British had established an economic blockade of France and forced many neutral American seamen into the British Royal Navy against their will, and those were the other two reasons. In support of the declaration, the River Raisin Militia was called into service. Their job was to build a road linking Detroit with Ohio. In July, Brigadier General William Hull arrived with his troops in Detroit, and they began preparation for invading Canada. And a really cool thing, Kelly, as I was researching all of this stuff and looking at the River Raisin Battlefield becoming a park, they recently discovered General Hull's road that they built linking Detroit with Ohio. It was one of those roads where they just laid a bunch of logs down. Oh, wow. And they uncovered a bunch of that. So now that is connected to this battlefield as like a outer satellite kind of location. Very cool. So parts of this road still exist today, which is amazing. It is. After seven days, Hull and his troops did just that. They invaded British-held Canada and set their sights on capturing Fort Malden, Amherstburg, in what is today Ontario. They accomplished that, but didn't hold it for long. 
The British and their Native American allies pushed the American forces back to Detroit. By August, Britain had Detroit under siege, and the completely incompetent Hull realized he had no choice but to surrender the fort in Detroit. This gave British Major General Isaac Brock the entire Michigan Territory. Things were quiet until November of 1812, when talk of an American invasion to take back Michigan and Detroit was being spread. A troop of Canadian militiamen were sent to the River Raisin settlement with one small cannon to prepare for this battle. This settlement was Frenchtown, and it sat 30 miles southwest of Detroit on the Raisin River, where it flowed into Lake Erie. French Canadians had settled the area in 1784. This would eventually become the village of Monroe in 1817. So we mentioned that this General Hull was incompetent. He didn't need to give up the fort. There were other forces that were coming in, but he just waved the white flag pretty early on. And now we're going to have this General James Winchester come on the scene, and he's going to be very incompetent as well. So the War of 1812 probably could have been taken care of pretty early on if there would have been better generals in charge. General James Winchester was a veteran of the Revolutionary War, so you think he would kind of know what he was doing. And he was tasked with preparing for a winter campaign to take back Detroit. He arrived in Maumee Rapids, that would become Toledo, in January of 1813. The general sent 550 of his men from the 1st and 5th Kentucky Volunteer Regiments under the command of Colonels William Lewis and John Allen to the River Raisin, after the settlement requested help when the British took control. When these troops arrived on January 18, 1813, the first battle at the River Raisin began. The American forces were unsuccessful against the stronger Canadian militia and Confederacy warriors. The battle dissolved into skirmishes that took place throughout the woods surrounding Frenchtown and left 13 Americans dead with 54 wounded. Casualties on the other side were not reported, but this was actually considered a win for the Kentucky forces. So even though they were having to retreat and all these skirmishes were going on, they said, oh, those Kentuckians, they won. Atrocities took place with Kentuckians scalping some of the Native Americans. Repayment would eventually come for that. The Second Battle of River Raisin began on January 22nd, and this would be the main battle of Frenchtown. General Winchester had arrived with more troops on January 20th, 1813, bringing the number of American troops close to 1,000. The British were reinforcing as well at Fort Malden in Canada, and several more tribes joined the Native Confederation. This included the Wyandotte, Shawnee, Potawatomi, Odawa, Ojibwa, Delaware, Miami, Winnebago, Creek, Kickapoo, Sac, and Fox. There were 600 British Canadians and 800 Native warriors that arrived at River Raisin before dawn on the 22nd. Despite the fairly large group, the American sentries didn't see them. The group formed an arc about 300 yards to the north of the settlement, with the British regulars and artillery in the center, and the Native Confederation flanking on both sides. Another detachment of Native warriors took a forward position at 250 yards. The group prepared to attack, but before they could, an American sentry finally saw them and played a reveille, and then fired a shot into the headline, killing the lead grenadier. And for those who don't know, a grenadier was the one who would lob grenades. This got the American forces awake and scrambling. The British artillery fired a strong volley and started charging at Frenchtown. They were met with a puncheon fence that had a force of Kentuckians behind it that were solidly protected, and they were able to fire at will. 
the interesting thing about this is we're we're talking this is pre-dawn. It's hard to see. And there's this punch-in fence, which is basically split logs with one side that's smooth and the other that's still natural. We saw these when we were in Gettysburg. Those are punch-in fences along the battlefield. Right. Well, in the pre-dawn, I guess if you have some of them sticking up a little bit higher, it might look like a head. So they thought they were actually looking at the American militia over there and started firing at the fence. Oh, my goodness. And the Kentuckians are behind it going, oh, this is pretty good. Although, I mean, it is still split fence, so it's not like a solid fence. But they had pretty good protection. Those Kentuckians were unrelenting and the British were forced to retreat. The U.S. 17th Infantry that was on the right flank was having a very different experience. The Canadian militia was pounding them and the Wyandotte fighters took cover in nearby buildings and were able to fire into the American encampment. General Winchester was apparently caught off guard, too, because he was still back at his headquarters. So he's got world? some guy coming in going, uh, General, we got a battle going on out here. I mean, they literally just had one a couple days before. So you have to imagine they're going to be coming back. So you just see him running around his tent trying to get his pants on going. Oh. <laughs> he arrived when the battle was well underway and ordered the infantrymen to fall back to the north bank of the river. The Kentuckians had already gathered there, and the group attempted a stand that didn't last long. Now, these are just a few of the Kentuckians. We still have, imagine there's two different battles going on here. First, you've got the Kentuckians behind that punchian fence that are winning handily. And then you've got this other group that still has some K- Kentuckians in it as well. And they're basically in retreat right now. So, as Diane said, those Americans ran in retreat. But the British forces were unrelenting, and another skirmish broke out on the south side of the river. Within minutes, the American line was pulverized. It was a devastating loss for the Americans. General Winchester and several officers were captured, along with 147 of the American forces. There was a large loss of life, with 220 killed. Many more were injured. Only 33 men managed to escape. At Frenchtown, the Kentuckians behind the fence were still putting up a fight and holding. The British tried three separate frontal attacks and were repelled every time, taking heavy casualties on the third one. This was the British 41st Regiment of Foot and Provincial Marines, and they had 24 killed and 158 wounded. The Kentuckians had about a fourth of the casualties, so of course they thought the Americans were winning the Battle of Frenchtown. They had no idea that the other forces had gone into full retreat and were being beaten badly. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. (laughs) 
The captured General Winchester was brought before British General Henry Proctor, who asked Winchester to have his men surrender. Winchester refused and pointed out that he couldn't give orders since he was a prisoner. Proctor then told Winchester that the Kentuckians would be burned out and slaughtered by a large force of Tecumseh's Confederation. The American general agreed to send a message, but the Kentuckians balked at the suggestion. They thought they could win with many of the men pleading with the officers not to surrender. They said they would rather die on the battlefield, and a lot of them feared that they were going to get slaughtered anyway because the Native Americans were going to take them out. Some of them knew what they had done and that there was some revenge on the minds of the Native Americans. And, of course, they're pounding back. So they're like, we're not losing. Major George Madison saw the situation differently. He knew they were beaten and had two choices, to surrender to the British or, as he put it, be massacred in cold blood. So he's the one who's still in charge here because he hasn't been taken prisoner. He held out to make sure they received good terms in regards to prisoners, care of the wounded, and protection from the Confederacy warriors. When the details were hammered out, Madison surrendered. The British had lost a third of the forces they had at Frenchtown, around 185 men. But that was small compared to the Americans' 901 casualties. And it was about to get worse. The British left behind the Americans who were too wounded to walk, and the River Raisin Massacre was about to happen. The native warriors were angry, and they still had an axe to grind. They returned to Frenchtown the morning after the battle and plundered the settlement burning everything in their wake. A doctor at the settlement, Dr. Gustavus Bauer, described what was happening that morning, writing, They did not molest any person or thing upon their first approach, but kept sauntering about until there was a large number collected, one or two hundred, at which time they commenced plundering the houses of the inhabitants and the massacre of the wounded prisoners. Numbers are hard to gauge, but anywhere between 30 and 100 people were killed and scalped. Others were taken prisoner. Major General William Henry Harrison, and yes, he will be our future president here, he actually was on his way to Frenchtown. If Winchester would have just held out a little bit longer, they would have had enough forces to be able to hold Frenchtown, or if he'd even retreated back to where Harrison was at with his group, and then they all come back together, they probably would have won this. He described the massacre as a national calamity. Survivors described the killings as brutal, but very orderly and without emotion. The wounded who could not travel were the first to die. Anyone who couldn't keep up with the march to Fort Malden were killed. Another survivor said that the road to the fort was left littered with bodies. News of the massacre overshadowed the Battle of Frenchtown and spread across the entire country. This is when Remember the Raisin became a battle cry, especially for Kentuckians who had lost so much during the battle and massacre. Many more Kentuckians enlisted as a result. All the American dead from the battle and this massacre were left unburied as people feared more attacks from the Native Americans. The River Raisin area wouldn't be liberated until September when Colonel Richard M. Johnson's Kentucky Cavalry arrived at the settlement. The British were riding high on their victory, but that didn't last for long. Remember the Raisin had reinvigorated the Americans. Major General William Henry Harrison went to Fort Meeks, not far from Frenchtown, and repelled the British. The Americans continued to have victories in the lower Great Lakes, and the British had to abandon Detroit. General Harrison then invaded Canada, won the Battle of the Thames on October 5, 1813, and killed the great leader Tecumseh. The British gave up their American-owned territory in the Great Lakes region, but retained Canada. The War of 1812 was over. In honor of this battle, nine counties in Kentucky are named for officers who fought in it. Only one of them actually survived the battle. 
the battlefield was named as a Michigan historic site on February 18, 1956. In December of 1982, the battlefield received national recognition and protection. In 2010, the area became River Raisin National Battlefield Park. There are only four national battlefield parks in America, and this is the only one from the War of 1812. And this one wants to be considered like the other national battlefield park that we visited last year, Gettysburg. This wants to be the Gettysburg of the War of 1812. And the complex that they're building there is just huge. And I have a feeling it's very similar to the museum in Gettysburg. Covers a lot of territory. They basically went in and removed a bunch of homes and bought up a bunch of homes so that they could take back the land because a lot of stuff had been built on it because it hadn't been protected properly. And they're trying to reset everything up like how it would have been during the War of 1812. And there's even like little things there where you can go and see how they made, you know, furs from the fur trading and kind of live like you would back in what the settlement would have been at that time. Interesting. This battlefield at River Raisin has made it into some top 10 most haunted lists for the state of Michigan. It's no wonder with the emotional baggage of this battle. Native Americans were understandably filled with resentment and seeking vengeance before the battle began. During the heat of any war, atrocities are committed by all sides, and that happened here. Settlers drove off natives and scalped them, and the indigenous people retaliated. The sentiments that this stirred nationally led to the Native Americans being driven out of the Northwest Territory, and eventually the Indian Removal Act would be passed, and most tribes would be removed from their ancestral lands and marched west. There's a lot of negative spiritual residue in the wake of this one small battle during the War of 1812. This area is also one with a lot of lore attached to it, mainly due to the French Canadians that settled the area. The French Canadians believed that the River Raisin Settlement had les fous follets wandering around. This is a legendary spirit in French folklore that is similar to the -the Will-of-the-Wisp. One resident decades ago shared a tale of having to take a rowboat from Johnson Island to get to the mainland. As they crossed the River Raisin, a huge ball of fire settled on one end of the boat. They started paddling quickly to get away from the ball of light. These are thought to be bewitched balls of light that are the souls of dead sinners that try to lure victims to going over cliffs or drowning in lakes. The founding family of River Raisin were the Navares, and the daughter Monique was in love with a man named William McComb Jr. She and her brother Robert went to visit William in a nearby town, but when they arrived, he wasn't there. His servant said that he was worried because he should have been home by then. Monique was afraid that William was lost because of the Les Fous Follets. The group went in search of him and were about to give up when they heard a pistol shot. They followed the sound to a murky swamp and saw a body lying in the water and struggling. When they pulled it out, they saw it was William and he was still alive. He told the group he had been walking home when he lost his way and then saw this sudden bright light which led him into the swamp. There were also the River Raisin Lutans, which translates in English to give people an idea of what we're talking about here, Pixie. Lutans were these little creatures that were green in color believed to be the spirits of dead horsemen doing penance. People claim that was why they only seemed interested in horses. The Lutans would steal horses and ride them furiously through the night. They would then return the horses all dirty and full of burrs. Sometimes they would ride the same horse so often that the animal became unusable for the farmer. Le Guru was also hanging out in the woods. This was a werewolf-like creature, and we actually covered the Louisiana version of this, the Rougarou, on episode 65. This creature lures its victim into the woods and then transforms into an animal, which can be anything from a mouse to a wolf. Why would you transform into a mouse? 
You going to gnaw on their toe? <laughs> <laughs> the creature was actually a human that was bound to the devil and could only be freed by bloodletting. Sometimes les loup gurus would invite their victim to hit them so that they might bleed and be freed. Literally, there were stories that I read where somebody would be like, oh, there's this wild dog that came up against me. I punched him in the nose and he turned into a human. Okay. So maybe punching sharks is a good idea. They might turn into a human. <laughs> what? Well, you know, people, they tell I you know, to punch but a shark. but how did you connect those two things? Because I was okay. just thinking of punching something in the nose that's an animal. I hear about it with sharks all the time here in Florida. So Animal abuse. I just love the name. Le Lou Many residents along East Elm Avenue, where the battlefield is located, have reported seeing strange things. There's a young female spirit in a billowing white dress that has been seen in wooded areas and other parts of the battlefield. People believe she is searching for a killed lover. Ghost hunters of southern Michigan reportedly caught EVPs and a full-bodied apparition on camera. Visitors to River Raisin have seen strange orbs at night and apparitions of soldiers. There have been the sounds of battle and the screams of agony from wounded and dying men. One of these soldiers has been seen riding a horse. Connie on TripAdvisor reported that her husband was scratched by something unseen. And that one was really interesting because she was just talking about how cool it was to go to the battlefield and see everything. And then she said, it did seem to have a strange energy. And then all of a sudden, her husband got scratched by something. Richard Ellison of Dead Serious Paranormal in Monroe is quoted in MonroeNews.com saying, I could still notice my surroundings, but what I was seeing is very hard to describe. I could hear screaming and loud chant-like noises, but my vision was a blur. It was like watching something while being underwater. I remember snapping out of it, but I don't know how long I was doing this. Richard explained that he felt like a soldier from the conflict had taken over his mind or something and given him visions of the battle. It does make me wonder if he wasn't just actually seeing it, because people say that about Gettysburg all the time, too, that they see this battle going on and can actually hear the sounds, smell the gun smoke right. and the air and that kind of thing. I mean, you've had that experience <laughs> yourself. I have. In 2007, a skeptic named Jesse Mayo joined a group investigating the battlefield before it became a national park, and he managed to capture weird sounds like a battle and a few EVP. There was an elderly Monroe woman who lived near the battlefield that had an experience. She said that she had dropped a treat for her dog on the floor, and it had gone under the couch. So she crouched down to retrieve it, and when she started to look up, she saw a man dressed in 1800s attire. And when she looked up further to see his face, the man disappeared. She also has claimed to have objects fly across her living room, and she has also heard unexplained noises. Inside the museum, there's a sacred Native American pipe that had belonged to Kiowa, Chief Santa Ana. People claim that spirits linger at this display and reveal themselves as little orbs of light. A volunteer at the park, Sherry Schreiner, was working in the visitor center cleaning shortly after the NPS acquired the building when she had an experience. All of the doors were locked for her safety because she was working alone. She said, I was just working away when I was startled to hear a violent crashing and running from the upstairs front room down the hall, down the stairs and out the back door. You can't imagine being alone and hearing that noise. <laughs> I know, right? It sounded like whatever it was was slamming against the walls as it made its way out the back door. Can you? I mean, it's like bouncing off of everything. It's like bumper bowling. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> is it running in terror for its life? Sherry went to go see if she could figure out what happened. The locked back door was now wide open. She decided to ask previous occupants if they had ever had anything weird happen to them, and they said they had. When she described what happened to her, they said that they'd had similar experiences with something running down the hallway. 
former residents had even set up booby traps to see if they could capture whoever was making the commotion. I don't know what kind of booby traps they set up, but <laughs> they should have set up one of them demon traps that we heard about on the last episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> see if you catch something. The War of 1812 is practically a forgotten war. Not many people have heard of the Battle of Frenchtown, and perhaps that is why hauntings continue at this location, to remind people of a dark place in our history. Is the River Raisin Battlefield haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, it sounds like a great place to check out. If any of you are in the area, definitely head out there. And I mean, everything there is literally brand new. I think this year, 2022, they just opened up their brand new visitor center. It's got all kinds of interactive stuff and everything. And also some of the legend stories that I got here was from this book, Hidden History of Monroe County, Michigan by Shauna Lynn Mazur. I hope is how you say her last name. That was just published this year in 2022 as well. And it's got a lot of great information and it's spectacular. So make sure to check that out as well. Spectacular or spooktacular? It's spooktacular. Sorry. (laughs) Love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We do want to remind all of our executive producers now that we are past our Christmas mailing. Make sure you guys update your address either in Patreon or send me an email if you give via PayPal so that we have your correct address. We got a few things back and then we had to send them back out again. So it would just help us if you guys would get all of that stuff updated. Absolutely. And as always, thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Kelly, you know, we put the picture up for our old town Albuquerque, which was episode 467 of Yana, who had had the ghost maybe in her picture from St. Augustine. And people were commenting on it saying they can see it very clearly. It looked like somebody on a horseback. And then Corey had commented under there. Oh, my God, how cool. I used to live in Albuquerque and in an old Adobe building that was used as a movie set in the 40s. And there were some rather odd things that happened there. When I moved away, I saw the face of an old woman staring at me from the other side of the house that I did not occupy. Maybe it's a good thing he wasn't over on that side of the house if there was a ghost over there. Right. Also, it was said the U-Mound in the Cindia Mountain foothills played host to a phantom that follows hikers that dare to wander the area at night and appears as a ghoul with half their head missing. Yikes. Yikes. He said he couldn't wait to listen, so hopefully he enjoyed it. I want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Patricia Galvin. You're going to be put under a chest tomb. And Colin Weaver, who we're going to be putting in a chest tomb. He's only nine years old. Thank you, Colin, for joining up as an executive producer. Yes, thank you, Colin and Patricia, for supporting History Goes Bump. We really appreciate it. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.
babysitters typically... Man, tongue is like flopping all over in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I have a strange visual of your tongue flopping around all over. They work together to grow fur bennet. Bennet? They got some bennet going on? I want a beignet. (laughs) (laughs) Proctor then told Winchester that the Kentuckians would be burned out and slaughtered by a large force of Tecumseh's... By a large force of Tecumseh's Tecumseh's Confederation. (laughs) He has a cool name. I just can't say it together with other things. By a large force of... Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. I can do it. I can do it. She also has claimed to have objects fly across her living room, and she has also seen... No? (laughs) She's seen unexplained noises. (laughs) 